0: SEO. welcome to Afternoon of Delight. We're Leah, Megan, and Amy, three American romance novelists discussing all things K-romance from a writer's lens. We fangirl over our favorite actors and actresses, talk up our trope addictions, and nerd out on K-drama deep dives. We'll throw in a few K-pop and K-skincare recs for good measure, because why not ride that Hallyu wave all the way to shore? So grab some deck bulky and listen to your new favorite Unis. Hey, everybody. Hi. Young. So I think I
1: need to file a worker's comp (laughs) case number because I have acquired a traumatic hair injury due to my K-watching addiction. Last night, I was up until two in the morning for the second night in a row watching Mr. Queen. No regrets, but don't recommend doing that when you have to work and you have three children. But this morning I like stumbled to the bathroom and I went to brush my hair. And because we're in a pandemic and, you know, we're not going to the salon or whatever, I had bought at one point like a comb that had like a razor built in so I could kind of like thin out my ends. And I grabbed that in my stupor and raked it through my hair a few times before realizing I like chopped out a humongous like chunk of hair that fell in the (laughs) sink and now basically I have like two little devil (laughs) horns like popping up on either side of my part because I've given myself some like kindergarten style haircut so (laughs) that's
2: it's gonna be such a pain to grow out, and for I know of listeners really, can't see truly it, really, have truly has these like hair devil we horns. We can see it. We
1: can um, see the horns. So, yeah, that's where I'm at in life. Yeah, thanks, Mr. Thanks, Queen. Mr. Thanks, K drama. I need some hobby pins.
2: Well, Amy and I have been up late watching Healer, so I finished, but Amy's two uh, episodes finishing yeah, tonight. All I can Finish say is them. it's just it's everything that I personally want in a K drama, and I adored it. I can't wait to talk about it. That'll be coming up. But for today, it is a deep dive on it's okay not to be okay, which actually, can I just say something about the title? Because I've seen it written different ways. I've seen it written, it's okay to not be okay. And I've also seen it, it's okay not to be okay, like the split infinitives. And I so I want to know, like, I don't know which one's right. Have you seen mm-hmm. it written both ways?
0: Because it's probably, a, it's a tra- I'm sure it's a translation, right? Oh, from- I know. From Korean, yeah. but if we're talking in English terms, and if, we're t- if you wanted to ask somebody who was a former English teacher, um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't split your infinitives. So you would say it's okay not to be okay.
1: Yeah. So, oh, say that's how okay I say it's okay it. to
0: not be okay. So wait, what do you say? It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay, okay not that's what to be okay. You call this show. You call the show. It's okay, okay, okay to-
1: not to be okay. It's okay to not be now, okay. What
2: do you call it? <laughs> Well you split the infinitives well, that way. A that's a split lot,
1: infinitive,
0: yeah. <laughs> I know. English English is so you, stupid. You just missed Megan's entire <laughs> question. Was like, because it's no, exactly no, I, what I, she was I, trying, I understood what she was like, saying and I was listening. But oh. what I'm saying is
1: that <laughs> I didn't actually think like any of us were monstrous enough to like not split the infinitive, but apparently Amy it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: she's a former english teacher <laughs>
0: you're villainizing me speaking with correct english
2: <laughs> all right love it okay, okay 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 so it's okay not to be okay A melancholy psychiatric health worker lives a nomadic existence due to his autistic brother's fears related to their mother's unsolved murder. After moving numerous times, they finally settle in their hometown and connect with a famous fairy tale writer who had a hobby of murdering butterflies as a child and lives in the best K-drama house since Goblin. That's right. Today we are doing a deep dive on It's Okay Not To Be Okay, one of the most gorgeous, emotional, and impactful dramas that we've watched to date. While It's Okay Not To Be Okay is a romance, the core focus of the show is on mental health and psychiatry, both still often taboo topics in mainstream South Korean society. Each of the main three characters begin the series as complicated and wounded people. The show is a journey into trauma and found families with a message that hope and healing can be possible. To start us off today, let's look at the show title. What does the phrase, It's Okay... Not to be okay. It's okay to not be okay. But
0: (laughs) moving on. (laughs) I'm thank you for asking it differently than it's written on the script, Megan, because now I will answer it. (laughs) So to me, it's a message that I'm really thrilled to see in K drama and in any sort of entertainment medium. And that mental health shouldn't be stigmatized. It's okay to struggle. Like to me, it's saying that it's okay to struggle with mental health just like it's okay to struggle with any physical ailment that somebody might have. And as someone who has both struggled with depression and who cares very much for a loved one who suffers from depression and anxiety, I can't say enough how important it is to let anyone who suffers know that it is okay that you don't have to be okay, everybody else's definition of okay all the time. You're not less because you might need medication to balance the chemicals in your brain, and you're not less because, you know, your illness doesn't show and people can't see it. So I just like this idea that is just in the title itself that we don't have to always be fine. We don't always have to be happy, that it's okay to have days where we are not okay. Yeah,
2: so I agree with what Amy said. I think it's a phrase that essentially gives me permission to have a bad day in a way. I have anxiety and I have some days where it just completely gets the best of me. And this phrase has sort of given me permission to not have to overcome that day because I'm you know, i not always going to be moving forward, I guess, in my battle with my brain. There are going to be days where there's setbacks and there's plateaus, but that's also okay. I mean, I know that the, a main theme of the show is kind of overcoming trauma or or something like that but I also think that when it comes to mental illness there's going to be setbacks and there were to the characters in this show as well
1: and yeah for me I think that this phrase is one of those phrases that at least in this country it's tossed around quite a lot to the point that it almost becomes a cliche and one of these like phrases that I almost stop hearing but you know when I take a minute to just really reflect on the words. There is a lot of power and healing behind them. And so for me, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, during my middle school years. And for a long time, it was this big source of shame and secrecy that went on for literally decades. And it wasn't until I became so exhausted trying to pretend that I was okay all the time that I was actually able to take those first steps to being okay okay-ish. And so now years down the road from that initial acceptance, I would say that my life has become immeasurably happier and more peaceful. I was able to find therapies and medication that let me feel and function so much better. So when there's times that I have setbacks, I feel like now there's a part of me that does remember that I'm not like a broken, like my brain's not broken. I'm just not okay right now. And that's okay. So for me, the show hit me in a personal way there. And I thought that it was really a positive step forward to destigmatizing mental illness. And also in reading up for the show, I found an interview where the drama writer, Joe Young, recently revealed that she had fallen in love with a man with a personality disorder just like Gang Tae fell in love with Moon Young. So she's quoted as saying, this drama started with my love story with a man who had personality disorder. It's a drama reflecting my narrow-minded self who failed to acknowledge and embrace and chose to give up just to escape from the prejudice. So through the character of Gang Tae, who is the opposite of me, I wanted to show this person the recognition and engagement I couldn't at that time, and I wanted to apologize. And then she goes on to say, I wanted to tell you somehow that you hadn't done anything wrong. So please be happy wherever you are. And while writing this drama, I received the most healing treatment than anyone else. That was the translation. So I was happy.
0: I love that. That's wonderful.
1: Right? I thought it was like a nice way to... Kind of just see, I'm always fascinated with like the origin stories of like a writer and why they've written something. And so seeing that this was like a personal story she wanted to tell, I think it came through in the writing. I can't Absolutely.
2: imagine how painful that was to write. <laughs> mm. I mean, and that's really brave to put that out there. That's so brave. I mean, we talked about reviews and ratings and how sometimes we write things and we put it out into the world and we realize that we don't own it anymore. But for her to put out something this personal, essentially, for people to critique, that's super brave. So speaking of that, do you ever work out personal life experiences in your books, and what's an example?
0: I mean, at, at the risk of everybody wondering if everything I've ever written is autobiographical, I'm going to say yes. I think I do a lot. Never verbatim, and never I'm never writing my own experience, but I definitely draw from my own experience. And one of my really early books had a character, she was a college senior, who was battling depression and who didn't like like she stigmatized herself and she didn't like the idea that she couldn't be okay without medication you know she hadn't come to terms with the idea that took me time to come to terms within my 20s because that's when i did have to go on medication for depression and at first i was very resistant to it because i thought there is nothing physically wrong with me i shouldn't need medication like i you know we're talking <laughs> we're talking 20 years ago right or more when we weren't as open about mental health when I was that young. And because of that, I wasn't as open to helping myself. And so I wrote a character who had that same issue. And I wrote this character, you know, now like, you know, 15, 20 years after the fact, and was able to work that out in her story to have her learn that it's okay. I feel weird that I, you know, I don't mean to keep saying the show title, but it's true, that it's okay to need help in a medical fashion for something, for a wound that you can't see, for an illness that you can't see. And that was really hard for me to accept for myself. And when I did, like, I was a different person once I finally realized what I needed and went on medication, and it was a whole new world. And so I gave that to my character, too. And I had her see it a lot quicker than I did.
2: I just want to say a big hell yes to medication. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So yeah, I I would say when I write, I don't use literal situations. I, I don't know why. Maybe maybe I'm not quite brave enough yet to do that. So I don't necessarily give my characters the same struggles as me, but the way they overcome them and the discussions they have to get there is very often echoed in my own life. So a lot of times I will have a villain figure and he doesn't he or she or them doesn't necessarily stand in for a person in my life. But a lot of times the villain will stand in for a situation or any sort of thing that I want to overcome in my life and how my characters battle that villain is, and the discussions they have to get there is often maybe something I wish I could do in my real life. I mean, I've worked out tons of situations in my head based on how my characters are reacting to situations in my book. It's always come, it always comes back to the characters, and it's extremely therapeutic for me. So writing and medication that's that's how i function <laughs> that's how i'm uh, that's how i'm okay on the days that i'm okay <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm also a big fan of medication. And I can't remember, I feel like it was one of you or it was another writer friend, someone like in my writing community that I remember one time saying something about when I was really reluctant to go on medication. This is, I'll get to my point in a second about the show again. But it was like the idea that when you go on medication and you need it, it's like you moved from being like on the edge of the cliff to like the cliff is still there. You're just like 10 or 15 feet away from the edge walking along it. And I've always thought like that feels like a really good analogy. Like wasn't like everything was like erased for me. It was just I didn't feel like I was like in danger of like falling into abyss.
2: I love that. It's like instead of holding on with my fingernails, my feet are on solid ground.
1: Totally. So, so yeah, just say that was you. That was you who came up with that because I know <laughs> I don't it was. Think it was. I really don't think it was. It was <laughs> another writer who told me yeah, that. Clearly, it sounds me. like a writer, but
2: uh, who said that it wasn't me. But I completely agree with it.
1: So for me, yeah, my first book series that was published is called Off the Map. And it has a heroine who's living with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And so it isn't autobiographical, but I did write it around a time that I was coming to terms with even admitting to anyone, including myself, about having this diagnosis. And it was a pretty confronting time. But it was healing in letting myself write a character who learns to feel worthy of accepting love and be seen as like a person with goals and hopes and not living kind of this tragic one-dimensional one-note existence. And I do think that a lot of writers have a core emotional story, and it's a story that they tell over and over through many different plots. And so for me in my books, I was like reflecting on that with this question And I think that for me, I often have an element of a main character who believes that a part of them is less than, to quote Amy, or shameful. And through the book and their hero's journey, they learn to embrace themselves as a whole self who deserves equal love and not just, you know, the bits that people are willing to give them.
2: Oh, I love that, Leah. All right, so let's get down to business. This episode will contain spoilers. You've been warned, so proceed with caution. We'll be looking at each of the main leads and how they contributed to a drama that we all have put in our top three of all time. Also, a friendly reminder to follow us on Instagram at Afternoona Delight Podcast to see all the ratings that don't make it on the show, spotlights on our recommendations, and fun and games. And as a new podcast, thank you so much for listening to us. This last month, it's meant so much to connect with you, and we look forward to growing the show to hopefully make it as fun for you as it is for us. If you could leave us a star and or a short review wherever you listen, it will help us continue to grow our audience.
0: Thank you. Okay, so let's get down to business and let's start with Gang Tae, who in many ways serves as the lodestone of the series to the other two main characters, his brother and love interest, who are highly reliant on his presence in their lives. While empathetic in his job as an orderly at a psychiatric hospital, Gang Tae cannot give himself love. He is racked by guilt due to complicated feelings toward his brother who has autism and shuns close relationships with anyone else. He wears masks to the world, never daring to show his true feelings to anyone. So bear with me a moment while we switch gears. I promise we are going to circle back to Gante, but there is a great writer's craft book out there called The Emotional Wound Thesaurus, a writer's guide to psychological trauma by Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And all three of us have this book. And the purpose of this book is to help writers create characters with depth who are both realistic and compelling. Crafting fictional characters is not for the faint-hearted. Writers must know them intimately, not only in the present, but in their past formative experiences. In particular, to make a fictional character appear fleshed out and real, we writers need to give them emotional wounds those hidden boo-boos from past traumas that derail our main characters from journey, alter their beliefs that they are lovable or deserving love, and sabotage their ability to achieve goals, all of which affects the trajectory of the story and their character arcs, for better or worse. On the podcast today, we'll be identifying the primary wound for each of the three leads using the emotional wound thesaurus and discuss how it influences the character's behavior in the drama. So here we are back to Gangte. Told you we were going to get here eventually. I'd say his core emotional wound is having a parent who favored one child over another. In this case, Gangte believes his mother loved Sangte more, going so far as to believe she had him so that Sangte would never be alone. So, here's my question for you: How do you think this particular wound works on Gangte's character? So,
2: first, I want to echo how awesome the emotional wound thesaurus is. I got it from my bookcase and i even have like a sticky note edit on the front from my last book there is a wound flow chart which sounds gruesome but <laughs> in, in, in the back of the emotional wound which i have used numerous times but basically it identifies the wound the fear the emotional shielding that the character has that often displays and flaws or you know dysfunctional habits and then unmet need and all of that kind of really creates the core of your character. So anyway, the, no, we are not sponsored by Angela Ackerman, and <laughs> but it's, it's um, a fantastic book. Oh so. my gosh. I've, I, It's honestly, so I have like a whole bookshelf of craft books and it is the one I, I actually pull out and use on a regular basis. So anyway, back to Gang Tae. So I find his core wound really complicated because it's not just the wound itself, but it's his reaction to it that creates an even deeper cut. In Gangte that won't heal. He believes his mother favored Sangte over him. And when she passes, he takes on some of his mother's role as a guardian over Sangte in honor of her. But I believed that in his heart, he's not sure he's doing the right thing for his brother. He's not sure he's the best guardian or doing the best job. Plus, he has guilt over the time he almost didn't save a drowning Sang So he lives with this double-edged guilt that he truly has placed on himself and it's locked him into a life where he is basically a martyr and he won't take himself out of that role until Moon Young forces him to, basically.
1: Yeah, and I think yes to everything Megan just said. I think that Gang Tae is... Yeah, a martyr almost in like the OG biblical sense where like he's literally just sacrificing his life. Like he's not dying for his brother, like in a Colosseum being like eaten by lions while the Romans cheer or whatever, but he's making an active choice not to live in any kind of self-actualized way. And I think that we see this wound in him manifested by the fact that like he has very deep-seated fears related to like being vulnerable to others, to loving others. And then he experiences all these lingering feelings of resentment towards his brother. And then layered over that is this incredible guilt he's holding from the moment when he hesitated the day his brother fell through some ice on a lake or river. And Gong Tae had stood there watching his brother in the water, debating whether or not just to let him die, which of course, I really don't think he would have ever done. But that hesitation and the fact that he had that hesitation is something that lingers in him.
0: Absolutely. What you're both saying. I don't think that he is able... He's never forgiven himself for that. What you said, that guilt has been what has led him to this life of martyrdom and nothing that he does in his life is for himself. Not one thing. Even the job that he has, I mean, he's hes good at it, but he has his job as an orderly at a psychiatric hospital, at various psychiatric hospitals. He's good at it, but it, it's not what he wants to do with his life. And we don't learn this till the end where he's like, maybe I should go to school. Maybe I should do this. And it's not until he is able to let go of the guilt and let go of the resentment. Here we go again with it's okay. but And realize that it's okay to want things for himself that that doesn't make him any less of a person and that that hesitation that he had all those years ago, I think a big part of that is he has to let go of that gangte. That was child Gang Tae, who had so many mixed feelings about his brother and his relationship with his brother and his mother because of how much attention she gave Sangte and how much attention Sang Tae needed, especially when he was younger. I love that we get to see Sangte, and we'll talk about it more later, being a fully actualized adult who can take care of himself later in the drama, but Gangte doesn't let himself see this. You know, like you're both saying, him taking on the role of his mom, he never lets himself see that Sang is an autonomous human with a life of his own. And it takes Moon Young and his relationship with Moon Young for that to sort of crystallize and for him to be able to let go of the other stuff and cut off his leash, as you would say. So another question. At one point in the drama, Gangte Tae says he puts on a fake smile for his brother. But later, Sang Tae mentions this is the first time he has ever seen his brother truly happy and shares that his brother cries when asleep, revealing that he knew the truth of his younger brother's suffering all along. Do you relate to Gangte's Tae's need to pretend to be happy?
2: So I'm like really bad at pretending I- I'm terrible at it. I'm a Pisces and I'm an emotional sponge. So I often feel what other people are feeling. My husband is like a very emotionally stable person. And that's why we work because I'm not <laughs> emotionally stable. And so I feel I-, I feel what other people do. So I have a really, really hard time then faking happiness. And I've had to do it a few times in front of my children, but I'm not good at it and uh, it's extremely painful for me. And I think I would need to have some sort of like deep uh, childhood emotional wound like Gante to be able to keep it up. I'm a terrible martyr. And maybe that makes me like selfish, but I just can't. I'm not very good at faking anything.
1: I think I'm an excellent martyr, probably from growing up being Catholic, who knows. But yeah, when necessary, I think I'm very good at wearing masks. And so that's not to say that I feel like I'm a fake person or I don't have like a sense of self, but growing up how I did, and I think also like as I like was developing what during like my middle school years was like a relatively severe mental illness, I became good at mask wearing and it was a very like protective thing for me. And I think that, you know, when you're faced with different traumas in childhood and young adulthood, it's usually way easier to put on a mask than admit to being vulnerable. And I think actually true as an adult too. But now I think I know how unhealthy it is. But for me, when I'm hit with emotional crises, it's usually my first protective instinct. My go-to is to put a mask up.
0: So I think I'm maybe somewhere in the middle of you two. I definitely, I feel a lot of things, but I don't like feeling them with an audience. That's why I love watching dramas that can make me cry because I feel like I have an excuse to have that catharsis, but I don't like being emotionally vulnerable in front of people. And I know that's not super healthy and it's something that I've been dealing with all my life. And I think it becomes even more prevalent when you become a parent because I don't ever want my children to have to carry my emotional burden. I think growing up is hard enough as it is. And so, yeah, I do mask myself a lot if I'm unhappy and they're around. These days, those instances are very few and far between, and I'm happy to say that. But yeah, I do think because it was something that was so ingrained in me and not by anyone, it just It just was in my nature to emote, but to want to emote in private. So yeah, that's maybe that's why I can watch episode 16 of Goblin over and over (laughs) again. (laughs) Because I can have that catharsis and nobody can blame me for it. Because good Lord, episode 16 of Goblin just rips my heart out. But yeah, and I do. And I think that's why... K drama has been so healing for me is because this past year has sucked for everybody, obviously. And it's been, you know, harder on some than others. And we all have different struggles with what we've been going through with the pandemic. But I'm healthy. My kids are healthy. I have a job. You know, I have a lot to be thankful for. So I think being able to emote through my joy of K drama has kind of helped me sort of unleash anything that I've been building up throughout the past year that I haven't wanted to let go of.
2: I'm a crier, like I've always been a crier. I was a crier as a kid. I cried in school all the time. I probably got made fun of. I don't remember. I probably repressed those memories, but <laughs> I I cry very easily. But it's it's okay to cry. You know, and I I try to say it to my kid, my my son can be one of those kind of repressed personalities. He can kind of like He'll keep it all in for, like, a really long time until he, like, blows his stack. And a couple times I've had to, like, sit him down and be like, it's okay to, like, be mad. And it's okay to cry. He he remembers that. Because I remember the one time he was crying and he's like, you told me it was okay to cry. And I said, yep, 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 it's okay. <laughs> and uh, just, like, Amy and I are watching The Healer and she'll know there's a female main character and she's speaking to a little boy. He's upset about something and he's trying to hold it in. And she says, it's okay. You can cry. And yeah. he just lets it out. And he loves that woman in, in like a motherly aunt way. Nuna. For the rest. Nuna. Yeah. yeah. Nuna. I mean, he loves her for the rest of his life. And that's one of the reasons because she was like, it's okay. It's okay. Just let it out. It's okay to cry. I mean, sometimes I almost wish I could be a little bit more, I, I wish I could hide my emotions more because I, I do think I kind of wear them on my sleeve. But then in a way, sometimes it's nice to just get them out and cry. And Amy's right, the crying over K dramas can be really cathartic. I don't want to do it every single K drama I watch. No,
0: I, no, no no no. I need, and I need a break. <laughs> that's okay, right? Like I know. Like that's okay. And that's and that's what we were, you know, we were talking Meg and I were texting a little bit earlier about about healer and she's done and I'm two episodes to go. And you know she already knows what she would rate it and i'm like well i've got to get to the end and see how i feel and i think about like my two top dramas you know right now are cloy and goblin and i sobbed my heart out in both of those and i'm like well okay that doesn't have to be the barometer though for for whether or not i love a drama like i think it's okay that i've been dry-eyed for healer and i still love it so i we'll didn't talk- cry
2: yeah i didn't cry at all and i kind of was like really happy about
0: it i was like i just want to enjoy a drama for 20 episodes it doesn't make me cry and it was great okay so next question thoughts on kim Soo hyun's performance and share a favorite scene
2: yeah, so he was wonderful in this role. I mean, we talked we the three of us talked about him so much. He's ethereal to look at and he nailed the repressed caregiver so well. I love seeing his evolution as his character was basically broken down and then built back up. It was like this show was like basic like military basic training for Gante. you know how I, I have friends that have been to basic training and they say like that's what they do they like they you know break you down and build you back up and I feel like that is what happened he was almost had like a childlike innocence at the end because he was like learning how to like be an actual person I think my favorite scenes are when he would let go like he would finally either get angry usually it was like getting angry and he would just kind of unleash and You could tell it was almost like this, like, release for him, and then he'd almost get, like, giddy. Like, the scene where he punched the one patient's abusive ex-husband, because the husband actually hurt Moon Young, and he punched him, and he, you know, he got a suspension, he was gonna get sued, and he just kind of looks at Moon Young, and he has this, like almost like this weird, like giddy, happy look on his face. And he's like, I might be getting sued. Let's
0: go on a trip. Like, he's just like, you know. (laughs) That was awesome. I loved that. Yeah,
2: I really loved how he, because that was a very distinct kind of happy that he had to hit. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, like his facial expression was just really on point that it it literally did look like he had just like unleashed something or, uh, you know what I mean? Took a load off.
1: Yeah, I feel like in some ways, like, even though they're very different characters and very different performances it reminds me a little bit of like how Lee Dong Wook addressed like handled being the reaper of like being like a very buttoned down character who doesn't like emote much but i think that in it's okay to not be okay yeah like in many ways Gong Tae's character i felt like was incredibly like repressed and shut down in many ways and so as he starts to open up or when he does have these bigger explosions of feelings like they just have so much impact and I love lots of scenes but I was thinking about it and like one little like section that got to me a lot in the show that I've thought about since is the night that he gives Mangte the stuffed creature to Moon Young and he's tipsy which happens a few times in the show I would argue that he uses alcohol as a coping mechanism and so he's at her beautiful gothic creepy mansion and he's like close your eyes and she puckers up thinking you know she's going to get a crap to smooch on those perfect lips and instead he hands her this tiny little monster and tells her how it collects nightmares in his little felt basket that he's holding and he eats them up and so moon young being so incredibly like empathetic and you know kind is like basically like wtf is this piece of crap that you just gave me (laughs) But then he talks about how he made it, and it's the fictional brother to him and Sangtae, and you can see she's really touched, and so was I. But then the scene kind of goes on to like it pivots to he's still drunk, and he goes upstairs and gets into bed with his brother, and his brother's all like you, David, basically, because he smells like alcohol and he's you know being ridiculous and silly. You know, Gang Tae starts being like, let's go eat like Jampong, which is like a spicy noodle soup at that place we used to go to because mom took you there because you liked it. And Songtae basically is like, yeah, no, we always went there because you liked it. And Gang Tae, still drunk and like tipsy in this little single bed, kind of like rolls back and has this flashback of eating Jampong with his mom and brother and realizes that they were clearly there because he, Gang Tae, liked it. And then at the end, they, like, leave the shop, and it's raining, and the mom starts to walk off with the umbrella, kind of doting on Song Tae, and you see little baby Gong Tae, you know, he's, like, 10 or something, and he's standing there getting wet, like a little Eeyore, and (laughs) his mom, (laughs) well, he does, he's standing there, like, went back and watched the scene, he's got this, like, sad face, and his mom and his brother stop, and are basically like, what are you doing? Like, get under here and get under the umbrella, and then, like, he gets between them, and he's so happy, and his brother's, like, doting it. Like, he's being doted on for once by his mom and his brother. Then the camera, it goes back to present day. Gong is l- laying in this little bed, still kind of drunk. And there's this close-in shot to his face. And, I mean... Oh, like he's such a good actor. And you just see like so much longing and pain, but also this realization that like there's an unreliable aspect to some of his like painful memories and like that core wound. And I feel like just in like three minutes of showtime, we see this whole big picture of Gong Tae from being this like earnest protector that wants to help others to being like kind of silly to being like broken and then having this like glimmer of healing. And I felt like it was subtle and genius. And it just happened like in this one little like collection of scenes. And it was really nice.
0: I loved that. I loved that scene. And I loved because that was the second time that we saw the Jampong scene and the umbrella, because the first time that we see that, we don't see the part where his mom turns around and says, Gong Tae, come on, get under the umbrella. And all he remembers is that she walked off with Sang Tae. And that, like you said, that was unreliable. His own memories are playing tricks on him because he was remembering everything that he thought was so painful and realizing that everything that happened when he was younger wasn't exactly as he thought. And so I thought that was really really a sweet memory and really emotional like you said in such a short part of the drama.
2: Having an unreliable narrator is a really creative technique that writers use all the time. I mean, The Girl on the Train is a pretty classic example of an unreliable narrator book and that scene just shows that's exactly what that was. Is he was his memories were not necessarily accurate and they were almost biased in a way and he had to remember them try to remember them a little bit more objectively but then how do you do that you know they're your own
0: memories right and as far as my favorite scene i wanted to say everything because every time that kim Soo hyun's on screen i'm absolutely enthralled and especially if there's a close-up on his lips those enthrall me even more (laughs) (laughs) but you know, speaking of our emotional masks and you know what we do to sort of hide how we're feeling, one of the scenes that really resonated with me—and it's not a favorite, as in, oh, I want to watch this over and over again because it's super painful—but the scene in the hospital where Sangte starts yelling to everybody that his brother tried to kill him when they were kids, and that he's basically letting out. Everything that Gangte has been feeling guilty about, and everything that Gangte thinks only he knows about, too. Like, Gangte doesn't think that Sangte actually knows that he hesitated. And now it's coming out that Sangte, first of all, he's perfectly capable of remembering what happened back then, and that even in his distress, that he knows what was going through Gangte's head. And Gangte totally breaks down. And it's super, super overwhelming and emotional and hard to watch. But I think that that was sort of the turning point for his character in starting to drop the mask, because it's all out there now, right? Like all his dirty laundry is being aired. And it's dirty laundry from when he was a child too. And that's what I think is so important is for him to forgive the child that he was and reconcile with the adult that he is now. And so I think that was a huge turning point, which is why that scene really resonated with me.
1: Yeah, I like how you keep going back to like that child as like you know a character and because very much like our inner our children like I feel like this is like a therapy show somehow but like you know <laughs> like they're still there with us like walking beside us and being able to like forgive yourself as like a small child for things
0: I mean yeah oh gosh seriously I have wounds from middle school that I'll never forget you know oh, middle like. school oh god. <laughs> Oh, man. Do you know, I
2: used to get nosebleeds all the time. Do you, do you know what that's like in middle school? Just nobody I... and your nose starts bleeding?
0: Do you know how no. terrible
1: that is? Were you, were you studying know... too hard like a character in a K-drama working I too know. hard? I just get <laughs>
0: no, but I know totally. what it's like to be a teacher with a student who has that happen. So oh. I've been on that end of it. God, the worst. The worst.
2: I was like that girl with nosebleeds. I mean, <laughs> no one wants to be the girl with nosebleeds. <laughs>
1: My sister was, and I used to call her Bloody Mary, so I apologize. <laughs> I was. I was a big sister. I was mean. But yeah, And then, just a fun fact to close it out is I also saw that it's okay not – want. i wanna, I'm just going to say it like I want to say it, and I don't care, Amy. Do so it. So it's okay to not be okay isn't the first time that Kim Soo Hyun and Seo Yeji worked together. Pop on YouTube and put in pitzel P-I-E-T-Z-E-L, pudding and then Kim Soo Hyun. And you're going to pull up a pudding commercial from 2015, which is the first time these two actors apparently work together. And you won't be sorry. They make sweet, sweet pudding magic together.
0: I want I- pizza pudding also- like you would not believe.
2: I also think this drama is the first drama he was in after being released from the military, his military service as well. This was the first drama he picked as like his comeback.
0: Good choice. Kim mm-hmm. Soo And now it's time for our favorite part of our show the K recommendation of the week.
1: I am back talking about K skincare and here in North America it is winter time and you know winter air doesn't do your lips a lot of favors. It's cold, it's dry, we're wearing masks, so stuff can get a little funky. And when you're watching it's okay to not be okay and seeing Kim Soo Hyun's beautiful mouth, you get mouth envy. So, here is a product for you. So the Laneige Sleep Mask, it's basically like it sounds. It's kind of like a thick goopy lip balm that you put on with a fun little applicator that you don't need. But you know what? I'm a sucker for the little cute applicator. And you put it on your mouth. I've got the apple mint flavor and you sleep with it. And I don't know what it does during the night, but it does magic. So in the morning you wake up and you have lovely kissable lips. So I recommend it, especially in wintertime or if you're wearing masks a lot.
0: I use my fingers for mine. I don't use the
1: applicator. (laughs) Well, you also say the show name funny, so.
0: (laughs) Well, you split infinitives, so.
1: (laughs) So, next up, we've got Moon Young. She is a bass voiced steely beauty who writes disturbing children fairy tales that are a little bit Edward Gorey, a little bit allegorical, and a whole lot autobiographical. She's definitely working some stuff out in her fairy tales. She is cruel, sadistic, selfish, Loyal, loving and liberating. So in short, very complicated, but impossible not to be drawn into. And no one else wears princess nightgowns, puffy sleeves or red Prada stilettos better. So first up, I want to talk about the fact that Moon Young might write fairy tales for a living. But do you also think that she actually is a fairy tale?
0: Well, going on what you said about her stories being autobiographical, you know, I feel like she related mostly in her stories to to Zombie Kid, just her intense hunger for love, which I thought was really shown well with how she ate, like just ate voraciously because... Goncte called her an empty can. So I thought she related to one of the fairy tales, very autobiographical, but like you said, they all were. But also speaking of fairy tales, in my day job as a kid's librarian, I'm reading a book with my fifth graders out loud right now called A Tale Dark and Grim by Adam Gidwitz. I'm giving like a middle grade author a shout out here on the podcast. It's a middle grade spin on Grimm's fairy tales, specifically Hansel and Gretel. And it's the dark version of, you know, of the fairy tales. And The fairy tales that we see in Disney are very, very sugar-coated. They have a happy ending, and that is not the norm with fairy tales. And so, first of all, I think Moon Young's books were very true to this, that they didn't have happy endings like fairy tales tend to, but... In her life, that's where I think she differs is because she triumphed over the struggles in her real life fairy tales. I think she could have had a very grim fate and she was very close to having that, but she learned how to give and receive love and receive some pretty delicious kisses from Kim Soo Hyun's delicious lips that I like to bring up again. And so in that way, I do think that she differed from the true meaning of a fairy tale since it did not have a grim ending.
2: Yeah, so her fairy tale got a happy ending, which is not the norm for sure. She was a perfect fairy tale from the cursed castle and childhood trauma to her entire aesthetic, which was unreal. I mean, I'm obsessed with her wardrobe in this show. I really want to talk to the wardrobe designer because it was incredible. So Gangtay's description of her as a loud, empty can really hit me as cruel. When he first said it, Like I I almost like physically felt the insult myself But then the show is full of characters having to face honest truths about themselves. And at first I thought Moon Young didn't care about being called an empty can because she's very good at kind of just putting a mask on and acting like nothing affects her. But then you can tell it does bother her because she brings it up again and again. She kind of, she almost uses the insult he gave her as an insult back at him. But he really made her confront her hunger for love with that insult, which ends up being like a diagnosis in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think that Moon Young is actually
1: like quite self-aware too as a character that she is kind of in her own personal like manic fairy tale land. She's a cursed princess. She's in this haunted-ish castle with the specter of the evil queen. And this drama had tense parts, but one of the only parts that like truly scared me was like when she would like hallucinate her mom like floating above her in the bed with the hair coming down totally terrifying terrifying. yeah (laughs) but you know she was also like dreaming of her prince except in the reality you know the princess in this fairy tale is also kind of a sadistic asshole and the prince is a basket case but they do find a way to earn their happy endings by slaying an external dragon because you know they beat the evil mom and their internal dragons which are those mental wounds that make them feel unable to receive love
0: I was tense in this drama whenever there was a sharp object and Moon Young was around. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, her knife game and their meat, their meat cute. I don't know. Is that a meat cute? That was like a meat. It's meet. a
0: meat something.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. I love it. bloody meat cute. Yeah. Ah. Oh, gosh. And just the idea, like I've cut my finger like on like cans or just, I mean, I'm just thinking of like the feeling of that blade when he like catches it and he's just like squeezing the blade like that had to have hurt. And yet you just see his face like blink.
0: Right, like that's so characteristic of Gang Tae, the fact that he doesn't even flinch when he's slicing his palm open with a knife, with a steak knife that she stole from a restaurant.
1: (laughs) So, okay, so one of Moon Young's core wounds is being raised by an abusive parent. How does this backstory affect her personality and choices in the drama? And we can kind of use the emotional thesaurus as much as we want to in this part to like kind of talk about those wounds.
0: Having that abusive parent all she knew growing up was hurt and neglect. And so that's all she could model was hurt and neglect. And we see it in the tearing apart of the butterflies when she's a child. And we see it in her hesitation to save Gang Tae when he's a kid. Because before before Sangte fell in the water, or who fell in first? I don't even remember now. It was Song Tae. Okay, so Sangte fell in, Gang-tae pulls him out, but then gang falls in himself, and then she hesitates. Should I save him, should I not? Should I save him, should I not? And we see it in her rejection of Gang-tae when they're young, even though this is forced by her mother, but it's a very cold rejection when she can't accept his love. And then we see this abusive behavior in her short-lived childhood friendship with Juri. She finally found someone who seemed to like her for her in school, but in her fear of losing her one and only friend, she basically threatened and drove away the rest of Juri's friends and made her an outcast, which then made Jury hate Moon Young. And now as an adult, the people who care for her seem only to do so because she makes them money. And so it's not until she comes across Gangte Tae and Sangte as adults that she begins to see what love truly is. Because at first, Gangte Tae wants nothing to do with her because he does see her as that, you know, cruel empty can type thing. But as he starts to realize why she's like that and he pulls her closer then it becomes very hard for her, I think, because now she's receiving love and she doesn't know how to receive it. And so it does take her that, you know, those full sort of 16 episodes to learn how to recognize love when it's real and to accept it and receive it. I think all of that comes from this hurt and neglect of how she was raised.
2: Yeah. So I'm actually looking in the emotional wound thesaurus right now.
0: And so one of the wounds is
2: living with an abusive caregiver, And a false belief that a character might hold due to that wound is to avoid being the victim, I must become the aggressor, which is that's Moon Young, I would say. Mm -hmm. 100%. Anyway, so she never really knew what it was like to have loving parents who wanted the best for her, which is heartbreaking to me. And so, of course, it affected everything. She had no model for love or friendship, and she treated her friends like possessions, as was the case with Jury. As as a kid. She thought, well, Jury's my friend, so she's mine. And she's just mine. That's even how she treated Gante when she first met him. I mean, I really love the scene where he's like walking down the street and she's like pinching her fingers together, like, and she kind of imagines like she's a big giant and she's like picking him up. I, I love, love that. scene. I love it so yeah. much. That's kind of when I was like, ah, like, I remember watching it with big eyes like this drama is so cool. But that's how she, she did treat him like a possession. She said to him, you're pretty and I want you. So she just wanted to own a pretty thing. And it wasn't until he made her face that he was his own person. And in turn, he realized that for himself, that she truly began to learn what love was. Her perspective of friendship and love for the most of the drama was extremely immature because she was learning it for the first time.
1: Yeah, I think that given her past, she has a deep seated fear in relying on anyone. And for her, she kind of equates like love as a weapon. And to protect herself, she hits out first, which is quite common in people who've been, you know, hurt a lot before. So she's cruel, hostile, irrational, manipulative, and needy. And that's all like her shadow self. But as she becomes more and more self-actualized during like her hero's journey through the drama, I think she becomes, I mean, she's always observant, but I feel like she becomes kind of like more altruistically observant. So she's not looking around, like assessing to like her own game, but she's like having like empathetic observations. And I feel like she's protective and can be quite generous. So at the end, I don't think she's like transformed into a likable person. I very much think she's not. I mean, I like her, but I don't think she's like, you know, she's still-
2: yeah, Moon Young. <laughs> um, that was actually one of my favorite things. That was actually one of my favorite things about this drama. Is by the end she was still Moon Young. Like she's still probably going to take a knife out. Yeah, you know, in the future. Yeah, or, or steal, steal your
0: or steal your pen. Mm-hmm. She's gonna steal <laughs> your pen. She's going to steal your little weird sleep
1: thing. You know, from the yeah. therapist's office. She's definitely going to eat bloody steak. She's definitely going to be high maintenance. But I think that she finds healing in realizing that Gong Tae is a person who needs support. But to give it and to like really authentically be there for him, she has to make herself vulnerable enough to receive that back from him. Which I think is the basis of like a healthy functioning relationship, actually. (laughs) So Moon Young is a fairy tale writer. And which of her fairy tales resonated with you the most and why?
0: They're all so gorgeously horrific. So to say that I resonated, I feel like is a a bit dangerous, but (laughs) I am going to say that Zombie Kid resonated with me. That hunger slash need for love is so palpable, like this child that is literally eating its mother's limbs because it wants the mother's love so much and so The only way that the child knows how to get love is to devour. And not that I am at all lacking love in my life, but I have been there where I have felt empty and have wanted to eat my feelings, you know, to fill that void. I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that. So yeah, I don't, you know, I haven't been that low, but I do think that that kind of just resonated with me because I know that feeling that emptiness in the pit of your stomach, that's an emotional emptiness, but it feels physical and it feels palpable. And that really stuck with me.
2: Yeah, so I'm actually going to say The Hand, The Monkfish, which according to Moon Young's mother was her least successful novel, but I... I don't know. There's just something about it that really hit me. It was about a mother who did everything for her daughter from feeding her to carrying her. And in the end, the daughter didn't have any hands or feet because she didn't need them. She only had a gaping mouth since all her mother did was feed her by her hands. So the mother then threw her daughter into the sea because she felt she was useless. And so I didn't necessarily apply that to my mothering <laughs> that's good because that's <laughs> terrible and actually I make my kids do everything because for themselves because I'm you know they need to learn how to do things for themselves because I'm too lazy to do them I'm more looked at it as the problems in my life. So what am I doing to contribute to those problems like what am, what am I doing to like take away the hands and feet of those problems and just leaving them this like gaping mouth that's like sucking me and am I blaming then someone else? for those problems that's kind of how I took it in and that was also probably one reason this show meant so much to me was I couldn't get enough of these of these fairy tales and how they applied not only to the drama but to you know I think universal to anyone who's watching them
1: yeah and that was a good choice the hand in the Monk Fish. like I don't know if it had like stuck out to me as much but like when you mentioned it going back like what a creepy creepy and like yeah powerful story and then with zombie um kid fun fact is we went camping not long after watching this and so we're out at this national park called pinnacles and we're sitting around the fire and everyone's like let's tell a story and zombie kid was like in my mind (laughs) so i'm like i have a story from like a cave k-drama i just watched so i told the story it's a fairly simple straightforward story and at the end kind of like the punchline is like the kid you know in the basement devouring his mom and it's like mom you're so warm and now my five-year-old who has a very high-pitched voice when she wants to be creepy she'll open her eyes up like a little like horrific mongte monster and be like mom
2: you're so warm oh my gosh stop it <laughs> and she has like really big round eyes too she i bet does. that's so creepy <laughs> yeah i'll see if i can get a video of it maybe we'll please see it. okay that is incredibly creepy <laughs> But
1: um, I'm going to go with Finding the Real Face, which is the fairy tale that closes out the show. And, you know, maybe a little bit on the nose, but it does a great job of summing up the entire 16 episode emotional roller coaster with the idea that, you know, once upon a time, there were these three people who had their real faces stolen by the Shadow Witch. And so in the course of the fairy tale, they learn that what the Shadow Witch has stolen from them. Was not actually their true faces, but their courage to find happiness. So it represents to me like the triumph, not only over the evil mom, but also mental illness. Not that they're magically healed, but remembering basically that like mental illness sometimes lies and pretends like, you know, it's taking your true face, but it can't do that it can take away your courage, but it can't actually like take away like who you are as a core person. So yeah, I thought it was nice. And I kind of appreciated too. I like, you know, sometimes when there's like a clean little like bow on the end of something. And I felt like that fairy tale really like put a bow on the end of that drama.
0: I want to buy the books.
1: I do too. And they're for sale. They're in um Korean, but you can get them somewhere. Like I've yeah, seen you them. Can.
0: Like, I have too. I, more than one merchant. So I, I think I need to get them. So
1: Moon Young serves fierce looks the entire show. Her outfits and styling also evolve as her character changes. What's a look that sticks with you and why?
0: So I think I like that idea of her evolving rather than one particular outfit sticking with me because I love how her character was shaped through those outfits. In the beginning, she wore some like fabulously harsh, big statement pieces that mirrored her then fabulously harsh exterior that she wanted to project to the world. And then that turning point was the haircut after cutting off her leash. And then she dresses often in white and the pieces that she wears are flowy and soft and her makeup is softer and her smile is real and genuine, which we didn't see before that. And that just really stuck with me is that sort of turning point after the haircut.
2: Yeah. So I loved when she knew she was basically going to be taking on her mother and she sat down at that mirror and wore that big, bold, tiered red dress, like bold red, bright red. And it was such a choice. And that image of her sitting in front of that mirror, like putting on her earrings in that dress is like an image of the show that I can't forget. Like I think of It's Okay. And that's one of the main things I remember about it is her sitting in front of that mirror with that dress. She really did like the tiered dresses, like, you know,
1: so many tiered dresses. So yeah, for me, it was the tiered white, roughly dress she wore in their family photo. I love that family photo moment. And it did, it looked like happy and whimsical. And even though she wasn't finished with her arc, like, you know, it wasn't the very end of the show, I felt like it was a real nod to like who she was craving to be internally. And the actress Seo Yeji crushed this role, in my opinion. So what's a highlight for you and how she played Ko Moon Young?
0: So in the beginning, when I first started watching this, I was like, okay, this, she's a sociopath. Like, how is this going to be a romance? And she was scary and she scared me a lot. And I didn't think that she could emote. So when you get to see her cry and it comes slowly, we see, you know, a little bit of tears. And then finally, when she does start opening herself up to love from Gang Tae and Songte, Tae, because there's that found family relationship there when we really get to see her emote, that blew me away because the way that she played the character in the beginning, I was like, there's no, I can't imagine this person crying and I can't imagine this person smiling. And so the fact that we saw that come full circle and we saw that full evolution of the character, I was pretty astounded that an actress was able to do that.
2: The thing that stuck out to me was she had two different smiles. And we've kind of talked about this a little bit. She had the cold kind of fake one that that was like the beginning of the show. And that's all That's all she did. And I would even say it was a very like minor smile. It was a little creepy. But then when she, after her haircut, then she had this like genuine smile. And those smiles cut me really deep because they were completely different. And she had to know her character so well and really feel those emotions to make those smiles so distinct.
1: Yeah, I love that we're talking about the smile and that it struck a chord with all of us. It makes me think a little bit of like Gia from Tale of the Night Tailed, who had her normal human smile and then when a mugi took her over and she got the creepy Moogie smile. Yeah. Anytime um, we could
0: bring up a Moogie,
1: we're going to <laughs> if, I can, if I can throw in a Moogie, I'm throwing in a Moogie. I think about a Moogie every day. Um <laughs> But yeah, when you see that first real like unguarded smile, it's like her real face comes out from behind that mask. And I loved how at the very end, they're sitting out by the little campfire and she tells Dong that she loves him and is like, look, I'm not pretending. I really mean it. And it's not a big smile, but it's an honest smile. And in that moment, I really felt that despite everything, they were going to have a well-earned
2: happily ever after. So, now we're going to be discussing Song a 30-something man on the autism spectrum, is a major driver of the plot of the series. While he often serves as an intermediary in the stormy romance between his repressed, resentful younger brother and the rich, high-maintenance fairy tale author, that's not all. During the course of the drama, Song Tae grows from a discontented, frustrated dependent of his younger brother into an independent professional book illustrator and hyung or holder brother, which is a social rank that is important and meaningful in Korean culture. So Song Tae's emotional wound is witnessing the murder of his mother. What were ways the show unpacked this wound and how did it separate that from the fact his character is a person with autism, which is not a mental illness?
0: That's one thing that I thought was really beautiful about the show is his autism was not treated as a mental illness. He did have an emotional wound that did contribute to his continued reaction to his mother's murder, but his autism was not part of that. I thought that was dealt with really well. And the whole Butterfly Association being Moon Young's mother's pin was really well done also. It was an association that could have been formed by any child witnessing such a horrific event. You know, like I said, was totally separate from his autism. And to me, it had nothing to do with anything other than the trauma. And I love how it was then tied to his art and that if he could paint a butterfly, he could triumph over his fear and his trauma. And as he claims that he would save his brother when his brother needs saving, because for all of these years, they've been on the run from the quote unquote butterfly. And Gangtay never knew what that was. But every time spring would hit and butterflies would come, they would have to leave because wherever they were, because Tae was afraid that the butterfly would find him. Because you know, we find out later that it was Munyoung's mother who was wearing the pin and threatened to kill him if he said anything about her murdering their mom. So yeah, I just I really loved that his trauma was completely separate from the autism, and it was treated in such a way that I think anybody who experienced that trauma could have reacted.
2: Okay, so I'm referring back to the emotional wound, thesaurus, witnessing a murder. The
0: wound—that's <laughs> a big wound.
2: That's a Big wound. So false beliefs, again, if you look up a wound, it gives you like an example and then it tells you what a character may feel and how they may respond. But one of the sections is a false belief that they could uh, have because of this wound. And it's no one is ever truly safe. The world is a dangerous and unpredictable place. Yeah, I mean, he definitely wanted to, every time the butterflies came, he wanted to flee because he did believe that he wasn't safe. And the butterfly was such a vivid image. I really liked how they kind of dealt with the butterfly because at first it was a sign of trauma, but then it was turned into a signal of recovery through the discussion that the word butterfly comes from the Greek word psyche, which can mean cure. That was specifically based on this traumatic event that Sangte internalized in a way that I think most children would. I mean, both my children have triggers about things that upset them as well as things that comfort them. We actually had I've talked about this before on the podcast, but we had a cat this fall, like suddenly die. Like I'm talking like she was perfectly fine. And then we came home and she was just dead. Like it was extremely sudden. She wasn't sick or anything. Just kind of like a freak type of like stroke or something like that. But anyway, my son like still. So we have another cat that was her brother. But anyway, so every single time my son leaves the house, he looks at me and says, is Buddy, which is like our nickname for our cat, is Buddy going to be okay? Is Buddy going to be okay? Every single time. And I just have to say, and I feel really bad because I just have to say, yeah, but like he's not always going to be okay. Like, He's still an old cat. And it's really hard, but it's like, this happened in October. Every single day he leaves for school, he says, is Buddy going to be okay? And I have to say, yeah, but it's really hard. And because that's how, like I said, I think kids, that's how they internalize things. And so to me, everything that related to this butterfly felt very real. And again, it had nothing to do with the fact that he had autism. It was just the emotional wound.
1: Yeah, and I like that it was butterflies, which is normally such like a happy, you know, image. So the fact that like butterflies like just brought so much terror. And then also that you just see like those flashbacks of Moon Young as a child, just shredding the crap out of butterflies. And it's, you know, they really like take this beautiful being and give them like a very sinister element in this drama. And I think that with Song Tae too, yeah, he has like this traumatic event Of like seeing his mom murdered by, you know, a woman wearing a butterfly brooch and has gone to like, it's going to impact anyone, obviously, and it makes him believe that he and his brother cannot be truly safe, the world's dangerously unpredictable, he has panic attacks, and he has like self destructive tendencies stemming from the fact that this wound happened to him. And it's not until he can like take responsibility for his fears and his own life with like the help of actually the head of the OK Psychiatric Hospital that he's able to kind of, you know, take some good proactive steps towards healing and like facing his fears head on. And in preparing for the show, I saw that in South Korean culture, many people consider autism to be a quote, a genetic taint that can even diminish marriage prospects for other children in the family. And parents are often reluctant to come forward or might even Seek a diagnosis of something called reactive attachment disorder, which implicates the mom's behavior and causing the child's difficulties. And this is cited with a study that is Grinker et al. from 2011. So, you know, it's a 10 year old study, but it's not that old. And they did find several surprising things about autism and the stigma of it in South Korea. So the autism rate was 2.6%, which is the highest reported of any country. And even more striking of that is two thirds of the children who were on the spectrum were under diagnosed again with the implications being it was due to that stigma. So what I think the show does well is it doesn't assert that Tae is broken because he has autism. He's broken at the beginning of the show because he has unaddressed trauma. And in separating both out and parsing that, we have Songte have this arc of independence where he ends the show as a professional book illustrator. He's very much taking steps to physically and emotionally be independent from his brother. And it felt like the show ultimately was centering and normalizing and destigmatizing autism and separating that out from his trauma.
2: What does Songte mean when he says Gongte belongs to Gongte in the end? And how is that a gift?
0: That's like my favorite. One of my favorite lines, and it comes up more than once in the drama, but when it happens at the end, that is what had me bawling. I, I cried the most in that scene, and to me, that was that idea of autonomy and kind of like what Leah was just saying is how Songtae's trauma at the beginning has nothing to do with his autism. It's his trauma from this horrible thing that he witnessed, which was his mother's murder, and the fact that he sort of self actualizes and becomes this autonomous person who does not have to depend on his brother and is giving Gangtae that gift of "You don't have to live for me. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna, you know, because they're on their camping trip and." He He's like, I'm done. I'm going to go home. Mm -hmm. There are other people who want me to illustrate their books. Like I am not just doing it for you, Moon Young. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to work and I'm going to do what I love because I'm a professional and you two have your little life together. And that's okay. I mean, the romance in this was beautiful, but for me, it was secondary to the family aspect of it and to the brother's relationship. And that really just pressed all of my emotional buttons. And I had a really good cathartic cry at the end there because it was a super happy cry. And this whole Gangtay belongs to Gangtay and giving his brother that freedom to finally live his life for himself.
2: So I kind of said to Amy and Leah that I thought this show was was beautiful and genius, but there were definitely parts that weren't enjoyable to watch, like point blank. It was hard. Like, I had to take breaks from it because it was just emotionally upsetting. Like I was I had like physical anxiety like in my stomach, you know, and I was like I'd like I broke out into like a nervous sweat a couple of times. And so I guess I kind of braced myself for a lukewarm ending. So the fact that this ending ended up being as happy as it was made me cry even harder. Like, it was like a weird, it was, it was like a weird cathartic release for this super happy ending. And, you know, Songte says, you know, Gongtae belongs to Gangte. You know, I think Gongtae tied his leash to Songtae himself. Like, Gongtae was the-, the one who tied it. And since Songtae was his big brother, I think he subconsciously needed permission from his big brother to untie that leash. Like, in the end, and in the end, Songtae did that, uh, giving him freedom. But Gongtae needed his hyung to do it. Yeah, I think,
1: you know, I don't have too much more to add than that. I feel like we see in flashbacks, Gong Tae earlier in the drama shouting to his mom during like, you know, an episode where, you know, he's over, you know, helping look after his brother and things and yelling that Gong Tae belongs to Gong Tae. And it's obviously a painful memory that gives him guilt and causes him stress. And so later when they flip it and have it basically be like Gong Tae again, like going back to his brother, like, won't you need me? It's like the end of the codependency when Song Tae's response is Moon Gong Tae belongs to Moon Gong Tae. And I feel like it closes out kind of what we saw earlier too, when, you know, that was obviously like something from his childhood too. So I felt like there was like forgiveness. And yeah, ultimately it was, you know, it was a love story between Moon Young and Gong Tae, but it was really a love story between the two brothers.
0: Do you think Songte is the real hero of the show? Why or why not? 100%. For me, Song Tae, like I said, my big happy cry at the end was from Song Tae saying what he said to his brother. And I think Song Tae is the one who gave Gangte, like you were saying before, Megan, gave him permission to confront and let go of his guilt, that it was okay for him to want a life for himself. And, you know, like you were saying that it, even though he could have made that decision himself, Gangte Tae could have, that it meant more for songte Tae to say that it was okay. And that it was okay for, for Song Tae to want the same for himself, for him to have his own life. And I also think that Sang Tae was a great foil for Moon Young, who for so long was basically just like, you know, an id with a body, like wanting everything and claiming everything as her own and not caring what stood in her way. And Sang Tae because he doesn't sugarcoat anything, because he tells you what he thinks right to your face. I think he helped put her in her place as far as considering how her actions affected others, because he would call her on her bullshit, which I thought was amazing. He called everybody on their bullshit, especially when it came to lying. With tae putting on that mask and trying to be happy all the time, it did weigh on him and it did cause him to lie a lot. And every time that tae caught him in a lie, he called him on it. And so I think that Yeah, absolutely. He was a big... Catalyst for the change that came about in all the characters. You know, while while all the characters had their own stories, I think that it wouldn't have been the same without Sante. Yeah, I think that all the
1: leads in the drama had like their own hero's journey. But for me, the one that will always have the most lasting impact from this drama will be Sante. I feel like that's a character that's going to stay with me forever.
2: Yeah, I mean, they were all heroes of their own story, but I do think Sante was the hero of the show. I mean, a lot of the plot hinged on him, it hinged on his memories, the butterflies, Gangte's evolution. So yeah, Song tae had agency, goals, and dreams, and he loved his brother, and he forced Moon-young to open up. So I mean, in the end, he saved them all, and he solved the mystery of who killed their mom.
0: So Oh Jung-se was
2: amazing in this role. What was a favorite Song tae scene? I feel
0: like I've said the end so much that it's kind of clear that that's one of my favorite scenes. But I'll throw in another small one, which was the photo shoot. And he was so excited to take this family photo, right, with Gang Tae and with Moon Young. But we didn't think that Gang Tae was going to show up. Because Gang Tae, at this point, knew the truth about Moon Young's mom killing their mom. And he just didn't know if he could go on with this relationship, which, you know, rightfully so. And so when Gang Tae shows up at the photo shoot... And Sante smiles. We know from what Sante teaches us of autism, the idea that Sante himself doesn't recognize emotion on other people's faces, that that's part of of him being on the spectrum is that he has to study facial features, and he has to study cards that show expressions to understand what facial expressions mean. And we don't get a lot of facial expression from him either. And so when he smiles, when Gang Tae walks into the photo studio, that just hit me in my heart. Like that was just beautiful. And I loved it. And it was so subtle, kind of like what we were saying with Moon Young's smile changing, you know, when she let go of her leash. When Sang Tae smiled, that was just so super subtle, but so moving and so impressive the way the actor did it. You know, that actually, now that you say that, this kind of actually just hit me because he's practicing all
2: those smiles before. Yep. Then, and she's like, but that's not the real you. But then he does smile at the photo shoot, but it's because then that was the real him. So he was able to smile because he was so happy. You know, that did just kind of hit me just now. I kind of forgot about the scene where she's like, don't not be yourself, you know? I just, I love Sangte. I I mean, I loved how honest he was. I loved his interactions with Moon Young. I think I love that Moon Young... She didn't talk down to him. You know, she treated him like an adult, like he should be treated. I mean, I do think at the beginning she saw him as sort of like an obstacle to get to Gongte that she had to overcome. So I do kind of like that she also had to learn like other people are people too. But I really loved at the end. I, I loved any time they fought like the one when they were fighting and there's like feathers everywhere and she's got like a bloody nose. And and then I love the fight at the end where they're arguing over who should read the book passages. And it like dissolves into this whole thing. And Gangte has to separate them. And- but then <laughs> I love <laughs> That scene was so funny. <laughs> the scene was great too. Because then when they leave, they're like best friends again. And they're like holding hands. They're like, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. And Gangtay's still really mad at them. Because he's like, you ruined that. <laughs> but they're like best friends again. It was so, oh, uh, I loved it.
1: Yeah, I love their best friending. And also I read an interview with the actor Oh Jung Se, and I wanted to like read a little bit on his take because I think it's illuminating. And so what he has to say is, I'm very cautious and I studied a lot about portraying the character Song Tae. I tried to deepen my approach to the character, but I think I'm still lacking a lot. Actually, even now with some things. When I had an interview during the early half of the project, I said that Songtae is a character suffering from autism, and I learned that this was the wrong expression. Saying you're suffering from something means you have an illness. However, autism isn't an illness. It's something that you're born with. I learned it's correct to say he's a character who was born with autism. Even though I studied intensely, I'm more careful, and I think there's more that I need to know. So for me, I felt like I appreciated that take that I read about in the quote and the fact that he learned from making a mistake and Oh Jung Se is not autistic. And I'm not going to make any calls here about like if his rap was, you know, on point or whether roles like this should or should not be played by, you know, autistic people as like an own voices. But I think he was transformative in this role to the point that in watching Touch Your Heart, it actually took me a couple of episodes to realize it was the same actor I was like, I know I've seen him. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, like that's Oh Jung-se again, who was again fabulous in Touch Your Heart. And I feel like he has a real sensitivity in the portrayal and the performance was really nuanced and heartfelt. And again, I love the butterfly phobia part with this character and working with the doctor at the psychiatric hospital and how like those butterflies are psyche and psyche represents healings and that he didn't want to like paint them on the mural. And at the end he overcomes his fears and starts to practice drawing them. And I just felt like from a cognitive behavioral standpoint, on dealing with trauma. It was legit and it checked out and I thought it was really
2: powerful. So we have some final discussion questions. So the
0: mom as the villain, what did you guys think about that? Honestly, for me, this is what in our super rigorous rating system, this is what dropped it down for me from a five to a 4.5. And it was only because in a drama that dealt with mental illness and trauma the whole way through, she was very one-dimensional to me. She was just bad. I'm sure there's a reason behind it, right? Anybody who does what she did, I'm sure that there is a reason behind it in some sort of emotional wound from the emotional wound thesaurus, but we didn't get that in this story. And so that to me was a little yeah, bit of a I letdown. feel like it
1: was the one note and it was the same for me. Like it took it from a five to a 4.5 for me as well, because, you know, I did appreciate some of like the over the top, like, you know, got the plastic surgery. surgery. the red herring is the villain is there the whole time blah 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 like you know that was fun I was willing to go with all of that but the fact that like yeah her motivations came from obviously like a very tormented place and for a show that dealt with mental health it's not that I wanted to excuse her being a villain I just wanted there to be some context instead I just felt like it was like Dr. freaking evil
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean at the end even I thought there would maybe be some point where like she would kind of break but she kind of, like, remained this, like, a little bit of an evil caricature.
0: Yeah, just laughing maniacally in the police car at the end. Right. Know. And and I don't mind just, like, a maniacal
2: villain. like, But in this show, it felt off because it didn't seem to match. Yeah.
1: Everything had so much nuance. Guess, and then I, we I just had say. this, like, just, very one-dimensional character. Yeah. So it kind of just stuck
2: out. Right. So do we have another Gia <laughs> yeah, situation so- <laughs> from Tale of the
0: Nine-Tailed? Because who... Who brings Mm -hmm.
2: the Moon Brothers?
0: (laughs) I feel like this has to be a whole show talking about children who raise themselves in K-dramas because it's
1: showing up a hell of a lot. Yeah, I feel like, you know what? Yeah, I think they did. I think they escaped. And I don't know. I mean, they started working and paying their taxes and whatevs from like the age of 10, I guess. I don't know.
0: (laughs) It's all about the t- taxes. Really, I mean it is. What's it's all about the, the taxes hand? and like taxes and parent teacher pa- taxes and parent teacher conferences. Like who's doing that? <laughs> I was doing the parent teacher. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um okay. Here's a very important question. Why didn't that screaming deer get a credit? <laughs>
0: So Megan and I were talking, we got into the recording before you, Leah, and we were talking about, like, I feel like it's the song, like, what did the fox say? Like, what sound does a deer make? Because Okay, I have sadly hit a deer in the road before. And I guarantee it was a traumatic experience. And I don't want anybody to ever go through that. And I'm glad that I survived it. And I think the deer might have because it scampered away after I hit it. But it did not stand in the middle of the road and scream at me. I don't think it's real.
2: Yeah, I was saying, these are flight animals. Like, they do not just, they are not aggressive. They are scared of, like, a leaf crunching. And so I live in Pennsylvania, which is full of white-tailed deer. I mean, we have, you know, the hunting season. I mean, they are everywhere. And they do not make this sound. Like, I, and I thought maybe I was crazy. I actually, like, I, I Googled it. I went on YouTube. <laughs> I went on YouTube
0: and listened to videos <laughs> of deer grunts. <laughs> but but regardless of that, I don't care. I loved yeah, it okay. cuz I loved her screaming back at the deer and I love the gong and And honestly, I don't know if I can say M2. this on the
1: show. And I'm going to just say had, like, it. This, like, trigger warning that I might use a swear word, but I don't have a better one for it. Like the deer was a total cock-blocker. Like they'd like go in and like for like the kiss, <laughs> the deer was like,
0: <laughs> "Yeah. Oh, yeah!
2: <laughs> and it had the little goes round mouth. It was like I I, I don't know. Maybe South Korean deer are just like a different breed. Well, we have a I lot of deer here too, like
1: you know, and yeah, they're definitely not screaming, some low deep grunts, but that was amazing. You know, this is a out of left field, but the other thing that needed a show credit was our hero's lips. Oh.
2: Mm. I mean, come mm-hmm. on,
0: mm-hmm.
2: they're just like you plushy them like pillows, like, like
1: plushy. you know,
0: they are. I just want to like <laughs> poke them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Poke them. i want to i want to take my little lip Poke application them. lineage lip applicator and put like you know the lip <laughs> i'm just gonna stop it's you know
0: <laughs> so come here let me give you a lip mask sweet dreams
1: <laughs> okay dang uh <laughs> thoughts on the original soundtrack
0: oh man in Silence by Janet Sa like that, I think of all the dramas, and I love, love the Goblin soundtrack, and I love the Cloy soundtrack, but I don't think any song has hit me like that one. And I could listen to it over and over again. I, it's gorgeous. It's haunting. Yeah, I feel all of the feels that I felt while I was watching the drama whenever I hear that song.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to echo that. It was like the words, you know, will you just hold me? Oh, my gosh. They, it got me every time. I mean, I would just hear the beginning of that song and like the tears would yeah, be I like gathering.
1: On my playlist and I love it. It's so good. And I also like In Your Time, Lee Sun it was had kind of like a quiet piano track that I really enjoyed. But In Silence is like tops for me. And then just a fun fact also, I'm full of fun facts tonight. Apparently, you know, putting fun facts. And now also, Dooley the Dinosaur was really like a late 80s cartoon. And you can watch Dooley clips on YouTube. I mean, I was into Dooley. Dooley was an unsung hero for me. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I'm alone in that. But I really love Dooley the Dinosaur. <laughs> Apparently, you guys don't share my Dooley love. You're indifferent to Dooley?
0: I'm I, no, no, honestly No, I mean Dooley in the, the show. It. Like his... Of course, yeah, yeah. In the show, I mean, I I love that. I love that that Songtay loved the show, and I love that he loved dinosaurs and that he had dinosaur bedding and that he wore dinosaur clothes. But (laughs) I mean, I'm okay whether whether Dooley was there. I found it to
1: be. I felt like I was connecting with the drama more by watching some Dooley cartoons on my lunch break. So
2: I don't know. (laughs) I thought it looked kind of kind of weird. Like I don't know. It was old in the 80s, like you were saying.
0: But I, I was. I was going to say, spoiler alert is that Leah has not been up till two a.m. watching Mr. Queen. It's yeah, I'm just yeah. All all right, so we're going to do some book wrecks
1: now, and it's okay not to be okay. (laughs) Has fabulous kissing scenes. Wreck a book that has one of your favorite kiss scenes.
0: In all the romance that I read, I know that I love the kissing scenes, but I'm going all the way back to the YA book that got me into loving romance stories just for romance. So it's Anna and the French Kiss by Stephanie Perkins. And I actually saw her talk at a conference. And what I loved that she brought up about the book was she said... The romance is the story. I mean, yes, the characters have their own journeys too, but the romance was the heart of the story. And that was really big for me to hear in my early romance writing career is this idea that it's okay if the romance is the story and that we don't have a ton of external conflict with the romance. But there is some external conflict going on. But Anna and the French Kiss is about Anna Oliphant who her dad sends her to the School of America in Paris for her junior year. Soap, School of America in Paris. And she actually doesn't want to go She's got too much going on at home. She's got a guy she has a crush on who she works with at the movie theater and all this stuff. But of course, when she gets to Paris, she meets another student, Etienne St. Clair. He has a French name, speaks with a British accent, but is an American citizen. Etienne is one of my favorite romance heroes. And I wanted to read this scene from Anna and the French Kiss to show you that kisses in YA literature can be pretty steamy. So here it goes. Kiss me, I say. He does. We are kissing like crazy, like our lives depend on it. His tongue slips inside my mouth, gentle but demanding, and it's nothing like I've ever experienced. And I suddenly understand why people describe kissing as melting because every square inch of my body dissolves into his. My fingers grip his hair, pulling him closer. My veins throb and my heart explodes. I have never wanted anyone like this before, ever. He pushes me backward and we're lying down, making out in front of the children with their red balloons and the old men with their chess sets and the tourists with their laminated maps. And I don't care. I don't care about any of it. All I want is Etienne. The weight of his body on top of mine is extraordinary. I feel him, all of him pressed against me. And I inhale his shaving cream, his shampoo, and that extra scent that's just him. The most delicious smell I could ever imagine. I want to breathe him, lick him, eat him, drink him. His lips taste like honey. His face has the slightest bit of stubble and it rubs my skin, but I don't care. I don't care at all. He feels wonderful. His hands are everywhere, and it doesn't matter that his mouth is already on top of mine. I want him closer, closer, closer. So thank you, Stephanie Perkins, for that. And I also just he love that he smells like does. him.
1: It's my favorite hero set. <laughs> I do I really I'm not mocking it. it. I actually always love that. no i use it i use it all the time it's a trope so for me i'm going with a novella and it's called the story Guy" by mary ann rivers and basically the premise of it is a button-down librarian answers an online ad that says like i guess it's a one ad i don't really know but it says i will meet you on wednesdays at noon in celebration park kissing only So she is intrigued by this person who just wants to meet up for some anonymous kissing in the park. And yeah, that's what happens on Wednesdays. They meet up on a bench. They just kiss and it's really like full of like longing and yearning and sweetness and so much kissing. I don't think I've ever read a book that has like more kissing scenes and like well done kissing scenes. It's just all kissing.
2: So I'm going with Last Hit by Jessica Clare and Jen Frederick. And I've read this book numerous times. I thought about saving it for when we recommend books for healer because it does have a little bit of a healer vibe. But basically, the hero is a Russian hitman and he's completing his last job. And during this last job, he basically sees this woman named Daisy. They like live in the same. He's like renting an apartment like across the street and he sees her. and He's just really fascinated by her. I mean, it's a little stalkerish. That's side the point. So she's very, very, very sheltered. She was homeschooled, raised on a farm. So she's never kissed a boy. She's like zero social experience, but she's very intrigued by this guy and he's intrigued by her. And so he takes her out on a proper date. And it's kind of cute because he's like this like loner Russian hitman. But he like really wants to impress this like sheltered Daisy. That's her name, too. Her name is Daisy. I mean, it's like so it's so great. The juxtaposition of these two characters. Anyway, so she basically she likes she asks for a kiss because she doesn't think she doesn't think he's going to he's going to make the move. And so they kind of lean in and he just brushes her lips because he doesn't know he doesn't want to like offend her. You know, he really wants to care for her. He treats her very gently despite the fact that he's a hitman and he shoots people and it's like the barest brush and she wants more. So she like leans in as he leans away and she kind of like kisses him awkwardly. And she's like, Oh God, I screwed it up. And then he basically just like dives in and gives her like a really good kiss. And afterward it's just great too, because he's like, she has not given me permission to kiss her again so i will keep my hands to myself like it's just oh it's so freaking lovely but anyway that's last hit by jessica claire and jen frederick and i really love it and i've read it a couple times so check Sounds it out good <laughs> thank you thank you for coming thank to you. my kissing ted talk
1: <laughs> thank you thank you thank very you. much so what are we all watching now i thank think we have kind of let the cat out of the bag on this one but
0: I think so. Yeah, I'm two episodes away from finishing Healer. I feel like I've talked a lot about it already in this podcast. so I won't say much more other than I'm loving it. I'm um, especially loving that I was introduced to Park Min Young with Secretary Kim. What's wrong with Secretary Kim? And watched her again in her private life. So it was fun to go back a few years and see this. I mean, I know it's only like six years ago, but it's like baby Park Min Young. And she's so adorable and so wonderful in this role. And Ji Chang Wook, whoo, really enjoying this. <laughs>
2: It's like, so I grew up on, I was born in 83, but I grew up watching like 80s and 90s action movies, like still love them. Like give me like a Roadhouse or anything with Jean-Claude Van Damme and I am happy. I love, love, love kind of like super implausible fight scenes that are just like over the top. I love like when you like punch a villain and he like overreacts and like stumbles crazy and that is what this show has and it makes me so happy like i'm just g chang book as the healer is just everything i you know i always want i love a hero that's just like completely gone for the heroine completely devoted willing to like do anything and it has elements of cloy that i loved like how he crawled through a tunnel for 20 hours for her like those kind of like sort of weird implausible things and that's what this show has but like a lot like almost every episode he's doing something like crazy to like save his love and it's just delightful and so I finished and I love it
0: I was gonna say and it has a villain who has a yo yo as a weapon. I mean, oh, it's so fantastic because this is the thing
2: guns are legal in Korea, and that's so I, I that's one thing I want to talk about when we get talk about Healer. There's something very nice about watching an action movie with no guns. I don't really write a lot of guns in my alien world, I think that's why I just hate them. So it's just, it's that's been that, it's just well, a really good show. I am that's looking
1: cool. to be convinced because. When you make the sales pitch of 80s action film, there's no part of me that is excited or intrigued, but you know what? I'm going for it. I'm going to watch it. I'm (laughs) going to watch it. Um, I I hope I like it. I am having an open mind. You have sold me not at all. Everything you've actually said about it has made me want to watch it less. Like You've texted me about like the parkour, like 20 minutes of parkour. I'm like, certainly not interested there's,
2: yeah there's parkour like, park, every episode there's parkour montages so, on rooftops and he like does
0: he does completely unnecessary but, but I, I will say you, i don't, think don't spoil, that like yeah, don't spoil i, I love ji chang wook but big second meal lead syndrome in this one too with yuji tae who plays kim Ho. so i think that there is a lot to love about it even if you don't <laughs> so, yeah i'm looking forward to giving you all my movies. thoughts as i watch it which i will start doing
1: unfortunately or fortunately we shall see after i finish mr queen mr queen i felt like vicky just like was like you know what i am not gonna leave you the f alone until you watch goddamn mr queen it was just like coming at me marketed hard and i was like fine i'm doing it i don't like body swap stuff i don't like freaky friday as a movie i just like hate that kind of stuff so much And I totally love this drama. I'm like hitting the table. I love it. I love it. And I'm alone in it because you both buddied watched 80s Adventure. So I'm alone in my love for Mr. Queen. I don't know. I don't even know if you're going to like it. I think you need to watch it. I think we need to do a show on it because, okay, I'm watching. If I'm watching watching 20 minute parkour, Megan can suck it up and watch some historical. And I don't even give a crap when you're watching it. And I'm fine.
2: (laughs) I will. I will. I will watch Mr. Queen cuz I don't like body swaps. I don't like body swaps and I don't like historical. I'm really I'm hesitant so but, this I, for other. but yeah, I'm going to do it because you have to watch. You're going cuz you you have to watch a fight scene where he literally does an <laughs> okay. uneven gymnastics bar okay. routine yep. in the middle yep. of a gang fight. Yep. And so yep. Megan, and what I will say with Mr. Queen all. <laughs> is
1: all you talk about is how you love bonkers. This show brings some bonkers and I like it and it's more heartfelt than I expected and I will say that Kim Jonghyun who you know was the second male lead in Cloy, I mean you look I'm not gonna like try to bring my thirst game to the show much but like I love it and I've realized that (laughs) Joseon like dynasty clothing and aesthetic is my love language like give me the gut and the bun and like the beads down the side and I'm like it's like a moment for me (laughs) So, like, I'm having, like, a moment of self-discovery in all of this as well. And just take that with a grain of salt.
2: I am going to watch some. I'm getting recs from people on Twitter and on my Instagram and on my Facebook to watch some gay Korean romance dramas. So I'm going to watch. They're, like, shorter. So I think I'm going to watch one or two of those because I can, like, squeeze them in. Because, like I said, numerous people have been, like... Megan, please watch this and tell me what you think. So I'm going to do that too. I just can't, I can't watch something like Healer or it's, I'm just going to be like. All right, but I'm Mike just saying, I'm holding you to is. this. I am going to do a show on Mr.
1: Queen with or without you. Okay. And I would like you to be there for it. And I am going to watch.
0: Like <laughs> okay, At, no, at this will. point,
1: all I'm picturing is like I butt will. rock. And like you've sold, you've sold this so badly to me. Like you couldn't have sold this to me worse. <laughs> so I look forward
2: to coming with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what was the, what was the, well, tell me what was the worst thing that that, that John said about John Van Damme? Van Damme don't, I was like, because out. I will <laughs> say,
0: okay, Leah, I will say this: I was not a Van Damme fan, so I this is not Van Damme for me. So, from it's like not. it's not. it's not like that like. In Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, it's just a string of fight scenes. There's no, like, love story to it. So, and if there is, it's very secondary. Like, this is a fully right. fleshed out, like I told you it, it gave me Chloe, Jellicoe Road vibes. And it really does, because it is the new generation kind of correcting the mistakes and unraveling the mystery of the older generation right and
2: there is some good history there about like the start of democracy in korea and the role that journalism played in that so it's just i'm really sorry i got really wrapped up we'll see see. i mean like if i like it and i hope i do i will try to present
1: a sales pitch for it for people like myself who don't get into the jean-claude van damme as to why they should watch it because you are an ambassador for a very specific target market
2: I think it could go either way for you, but I also think the reasons you like it are going to be, like, different than the reasons I like it. What are we going to do for the next episode?
0: Well, we are going to take a pause from dramas and watch some Korean cinema with Train to Busan. Not not a romance, but I will say probably my favorite zombie movie I have ever seen
2: yeah and- i love zombie movies it's literally my one of my favorite movie genres which is maybe weird i don't know but i love them i watch zombie movies all the time and train to busan's hands down my favorite zombie movie it is and i watched train to busan by the way before i ever started watching K dramas. i mean i watched it shortly after it came out so you know i loved it not just because i was like into and watching, i have not I mean, watched it so i will be watching it for the episode and again just like I don't like Jean-Claude Van Damme,
1: I also don't really like zombies. I do like Megan, though. And so I am happy to embrace the train to Busan because also <laughs> I do like Gong Yu.
2: And yeah, and obviously he plays the major yeah. role. He's got the good haircut, the good slick back haircut. And he wears like a suit the entire Again, time. Again, Megan, don't you know me but, you know, know. at all.
1: I like the, flat the, hair the and the Fisher. You're like, okay, he's her. got this other whole haircut and suit. So I'm like, no, that's not.
0: That's not
2: the sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that we do have completely different tastes.
0: <laughs> okay. That wraps yeah. everything up for today. Otherwise we're never going to end this podcast. Yeah. So thank Annyeong. you for listening everyone. And let's all say. Annyeong. Kamsamnida. Thank you for listening to Afternoon Delight. Make sure to subscribe for more great K-Romance conversation. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Afternoon Delight Podcast for more information on our podcast Behind the scenes photos, and of course, pics of our favorite opas and unease. Annyong!